stuff behind the scenes. That's where I really, uh, I feel like, thrive. But God's Word is so great. One of the ways that we always encourage one another, uh, you know, when it's like Wednesday or Thursday and you have an outline for your sermon, but it, you don't feel great about it, or, you know, maybe it's like Thursday uh, and you know you're going to have some late nights coming up because you just don't feel good about your examples or the stories you're going to share. We always encourage each other as staff that we have the best material to work from. We have the Bible, and it's the best material to work from. So we don't ever have to worry uh, because we have the best material. And so <clears throat> I chose a passage so, uh, specifically so I could double down on the best material because our passage for today is about the Bible, talking about how good the Bible is. So I'm like doubling down on uh, good material. So I'm excited to be with you guys here today. I'm going to read you a, a, a short section of a book I'm reading that is not the Bible. It's a, a, an account of an author taking a trip. Um, I'm going to start off with that because I think it highlights something about how we think about the Bible. So the, the, uh, he, he decides to stop at a church on his trip. He stops at a church every Sunday, and this is the first time, first Sunday, he stops at a church. And he says, The service did my heart and I hope my soul some good. It had been losing, it had been long since I had heard such an approach. It is our practice now, at least in large cities, to find from our psychiatric priesthood that our sins aren't really sins, but accidents that are set in motion by forces beyond our control. There is no such sense in this church. There is no such nonsense in this church. The minister, a man of iron with tool steel eyes and a delivery like a pneumatic drill, opened up with prayer and reassured us that we were a pretty sorry lot. And he was right. He didn't, we didn't amount to much to begin with, and due to our own tawdry efforts, we had been slipping ever since. Then, having softened us up, he went into a glorious sermon, a fire and brimstone sermon, Having proved that we, or perhaps only I, were no good, he painted with cool certainty what was likely to happen to us if we didn't make some basic reorganizations for which he didn't hold out much hope. He spoke of hell as an expert, not the mush-mush hell of the, these soft days, but a well-stoked, white-hot hell that served by technicians of the first order. This guy's talking a little tongue-in-cheek. Okay. He put my sins in new perspective. Whereas they had been small and mean and nasty and best forgotten, this minister gave them some size and bloom and dignity. I hadn't been thinking very well of myself for some years, but if my sins had this dimension, then there was some pride left. I wasn't just a naughty little child, but a first-rate sinner, and I was going to catch it. I felt so revived in spirit that I put $5 in the plate and afterwards, in front of the church, shook hands warmly with everyone. So this, this passage comes from a book uh, written by an author who feels like he's kind of lost touch with the people he's writing to. And so he actually sets out on a journey. He gets a pickup and a camper that goes on the back, and he loads his dog up, and he drives from New York to California and then back to New York. And I know that would be a fantasy for many of us, uh, but he does this to connect back with his people. Uh, but I think it also shows how we often react to God's word. We do often crave things to be given to us straight and not watered down. We actually, I think as people, we crave that genuineness and authenticity. Uh, we want to hear something from a reliable source. And uh, oftentimes, though, uh, we pick bad sources, 
Or sometimes we pick good sources, but then we deny the real authority and power that the author or that the source has. Uh, this, also, this passage also highlights that sometimes we feel good about feeling bad. We, as people, like religion. We like to know the rules. We like to know when we broke the rules. And we hope that by following the rules, we can make ourselves better or get some, somewhere. But this book is really just literature. It's just art. And because it is, all the interpretations I just gave you, those are valid. Uh, and uh, you can't say they're not. And, but the, the weakness of that, uh, the weakness of art and literature is that uh, you could come up with your own interpretation, and I couldn't say that it wasn't great either. Today we're going to talk about something entirely different than art, something unique and unlike anything else in the world. So we've been hearing from Pastor Jack about Titus, and that's Paul writing to a pastor who's pastoring a group of churches. And today our uh, passage comes from another book where Paul's writing to another pastor, and his name is Timothy. And we're going to see what Paul wanted to teach Timothy about God's special words that we call the Bible. He wants to teach Timothy that when God breathed his words, we get better. So 2 Timothy 3.16 should be up on the screen, and I chose my NIV 84 because that's how I had it memorized since I was young, and I can't get this version out of my head, so... This is, this is the one we're going to use. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's start at look, looking at what Paul wrote, wrote to us. What does he mean when he says that all scripture is God-breathed? It's kind of an awkward wording, but part of the reason, too, that I chose this version is that's uh, the most accurate the most literal uh, way to say it. At its simplest, God breathed means these are God's words. It's inspired, it's infallible, all those fancy words. What it means is that God said the words that we have in Scripture. So I went to Moody Bible Institute. If any of you guys know where that's at, it's in Chicago. And somebody gave me a woot, I think. Uh, anyways, uh, Moody's great. And you show up to Moody, and you're going to see this big stone block set in a brick wall. They do not want this to change. They don't want it to move. They don't want anybody to do anything to it. And it quotes this verse. This is the verse that's quoted on that stone, probably in the King James, but it's there. And you show up there, and you know that that's a big deal. And so my school, uh, a while ago, along with other theologians, they gathered together in Chicago because this verse is really a keystone principle verse to explain how we got Scripture, that it came from God to us, that it's inspired, that it doesn't have errors, that it's faithful in everything it says. Uh, this verse is a really principle uh, verse to understand that. And so they got together and they wrote what was called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And you can get it for free. It's a PDF on the internet. Uh, I want to read you just one article uh, that it said, I'm, I, I experienced a new problem in this sermon that I've never experienced before. I had t so much material that it made me nervous that I wasn't going to get through all of it. So I'm going to cut some things out, and I will not read every scripture that I put up there, okay? But uh, it will help me. We'll all just slow down and enjoy it, our time together around God's Word if we do that. So Article 7 says, We affirm that inspiration was the work in which God, by His Holy Spirit, 
through human writers, gave us his word. The origin of scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration means largely, um, remains largely a mystery to us. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. What they wanted to affirm, too, is that God's, God breathed means these are God's words. They're his. He gave them to us in a special way that we don't fully understand, but they are his words that he gave to us in the Bible. Paul, uh, also, knowing his audience, he is telling Timothy, and this is kind of assumed, but he's telling Timothy that the Old Testament is Scripture. He's telling Timothy was, uh, had a Jewish mother and considered himself Jewish. He would have grown up with the Old Testament, and Paul is reminding him, maybe because there were lots of other teachings at that time, just like there is today. They had other books and other writings that were maybe even good and godly and helpful, but Paul is maybe reminding Timothy, hey, remember that the Scripture is supposed to be your focus. He also could be, uh, and that's kind of what we're going to hit on next, uh, telling Timothy, hey, don't just pay attention to the Old Testament. There is new Scripture coming out. That's something that happened in Timothy's day that does not happen now, that has not happened since the New Testament was written and put together. Uh, but that is something that was happening in Timothy's day. In fact, uh, there are two distinct instances where we see New Testament writers quoting another writer as Scripture or referencing their work as Scripture. So the New Testament is also Scripture, and Paul, I think, was trying to uh, remind Timothy of that or tell Timothy to focus on that. I'm just going to read uh, my first uh, passage, and it's 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16. So this is Peter, or 2 Peter. This is Peter writing about Paul. So the guy who's writing the book we're studying, this is Peter writing about him. And he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in, the, in, uh, in them in these matters. There are some things in, in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is very blatantly considering Paul, his words can get twisted by people and misused by people as they do the other scriptures, just like the things that, that were written down for us in the Old Testament. It's really neat to see. And there's another passage, too, where uh, uh, Paul himself, in 1 Timothy, he quotes something that Luke wrote down that Jesus said. It's really, it's really neat, too. And that, you can see that reference up there. It's 1 Timothy 5:18. We can see from these, these examples that men who knew Jesus and were writing what would become the New Testament were already then recognizing each other's work of Scripture. In the next part of our passage, though, Paul's going to take it outside of just saying these words are God's. He's going to say, what, what does that mean? What does that do for us? Paul tells Timothy that this God-breathed Scripture makes us better. He says it's useful to us. And uh, we all know that writers... TV personalities, probably even your pastors sometimes, we might overstate something to make a point, uh, but also maybe the more skilled people, the more skilled uh, speakers or writers can sometimes understate something, and it makes an equally uh, profound point. And I think that's what God, or that's what God through Paul uh, does here. When Paul says that scripture is useful for us, Useful is very much an understatement. Uh, 
So when I, when I made thought of the, when I think of the word useful uh, and something being useful, I think, and this is where my title for my sermon comes from, I think of uh, Christmas socks, that really practical and useful gift that we all get. And there was actually a time, uh, you know, when we're kids, we want, what do we want for Christmas? We want toys or a bicycle or video games. We want something fun and exciting. But I recognized at one point as I kind of started to grow up and mature a little bit that my parents did a lot for me. They helped me in so many ways. They were so kind. They spent all the money on all the food that my body needed in calories to get as tall as I am. It needed every bit of probably their income just to feed me. And so I realized at some point, okay, I need to stop asking for expensive things. I don't really need new expensive things. I can go out and make my own money if I want to buy something fun. And so I grew up a little bit maybe, and I started asking my parents for socks for Christmas. I like socks. I needed socks. I wore my socks out. I didn't want to spend my own money on socks. So I would ask my parents for socks. And socks are the kind of the quintessential useful uh, gift. But God's word is something so much better than useful. It can actually change our lives. I've never been had my life changed by a pair of socks. Um, I, mean, I know that many of us have suffered through hard situations, hard relationships, long seasons of uncertainty or heartache, but what can cut through that fog? What can cut through that just kind of angst that we sometimes find ourselves in, even for long stretches of time? And I think the answer is very obviously God's word. When someone gives us a well-placed psalm that maybe has been meaningful to them, that helps us take our eyes off our own problems and see God as something bigger and better. Our problems aren't small, they're not insignificant, they're not nothing, but God is bigger and better. Or sometimes we can get some good advice uh, from a friend. Maybe some helpful advice, maybe advice that hurts a little bit because it tells us something we didn't really want to know about ourselves. Um, And that also is just the power of God's word. Uh, It's not always even a quote that will change us, but oftentimes it's that brother or sister, that friend who uh, lives out a scriptural principle towards us. They might listen more than they speak. They might listen to us They might uh, love us like they love themselves, and we know they're loving us. Those living out of scriptural principles, that is a way that the Bible uh, really has power to change our lives. And because of this, because God's word, God-breathed means these are God's words, we can't take a small view of the Bible. Uh, If uh, God's words are a reflection of him, then it's, it's, it's a big deal. His word is a big deal. We also uh, cannot, and I'm kind of passionate about this, but we can't take a small view of our own need to always be uh, turning our thoughts and hearts to Scripture and letting it work on us. If we plateau in our understanding of our own perceived righteousness anyways. We kind of say, I've checked off these boxes and I'm good to go. If we ever do that, we are utterly denying the power that the scripture has to mature us and build joy in our community, effectiveness in our world for Jesus, and real maturity past an elementary level. 
we just kind of stay third graders. And we raise kids who are third graders, hoping that they'll stay third graders their whole life and raise third graders themselves. If we think we've ever arrived or made it, or we have, there's no more work that the Bible has to do on us, we've, we've denied all of its power. When God breathes his words to us in the Bible, we just don't have a cool gadget. We actually get better. And here, Paul's going to just give us four really practical, simple, and easy-to-understand under, ways that the Bible is useful uh, to make us better. And the first one is teaching. It's the first one on the list. And, uh, you know, I, I used to build houses. I used to work construction. And uh, teaching is really like those days on the job where they would say, here, here's how you hold a nail gun and don't shoot your finger. Here's how you build a wall and measure out 16-inch stud centers. It's very much just teaching. Here's how to do something. And the Bible does that for us in many ways. Uh, one, one thing it does is it tells us things that are not good for us to do, like don't murder. Very not good thing to do. Uh, also, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Another good thing. It teaches us that. But it teaches us some more positive things uh, as well. In, in Philippians 4.8, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's something that the Bible teaches us. It teaches us to think about the good things, the excellent things, the things that God has made that are beautiful, the, the, the work he's doing amongst his people that's just awesome to see. That is what God is teaching us through his Bible to do. There's another verse, I'm not going to read it, but if you want to write it down, Ephesians 4, 2 through 5. Another great teaching on how we're one body, one spirit, all together. These are positive teachings, not just do not do this, but positive t teachings of how we're supposed to think and how we're supposed to live. And if you have never had the experience of being taught something from Scripture that you didn't know, that's super interesting. I, I think a lot of us, because I would assume many of you grew up in the church, you underestimate uh, the amount of things that you were taught at a very young age. I know, uh, I think I may have even said on my announcements, I was a little bit of a moody teenager for part of my teenage years until God got a hold of me and shook me awake. And I didn't care too much for many years about all the things I had learned in church growing up until I did care. And then all of that, all those things that I had been taught made sense and I woke up to how important and how powerful they are. If you ever want to know how great the Bible is for teaching, just get to know someone who didn't know Jesus until their 20s or in their 30s. And they are just going to love every single thing that they can hear from the Bible about God. When we go to the Bible, we, uh, to be taught, we not only get better, but we move from death to life. That's one of the great things the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that we're all sinners and that we're all saved by believing and confessing Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And there's another way that Paul, and if you've looked ahead to this word, maybe you don't love this word. I doubt too many people love this word. Uh, but Paul is teaching Timothy that all Scripture is good for rebuke. Who loves rebuke? Whose favorite thing is rebuke? Nobody's. Um, we, sometimes we need to be taught to do stuff, but just teaching people to do stuff, just educating people will not fix all of their problems. Sometimes we have to be told to stop. And I think again back to my job site, construction site days, 
there'd be younger guys and we'd have them out on the telehandler and they'd be carrying a big heavy load of lumber and they'd be going through some ruts and they'd be about ready to tip that whole thing over. And what do you do? You yell, stop, quit it. You know, whatever you have to do to get their attention. Uh, I have yelled at grown men very loudly many times uh, to save their life or to save someone else's. And that is the core idea of what rebuking is. Um, It's telling someone to stop because what they're doing is dangerous. It's going to hurt them or hurt someone else. Um, But rebuking doesn't always have to carry that super negative overtone. Um, It always should be seen as something to help us. You know, we cannot see our own blind spots. By definition, we can't. And if we don't have anyone in our lives to rebuke us or tell us to stop going the way we're going or stop thinking the way we're thinking or stop feeling the way we're feeling, then we are poor indeed. The people who are the richest often are the people who have friends who love them enough to do those things for them. This, uh, really the only way that we can do this though is by living in good, authentic community. We have to be living together and people have to be able to see and know us well enough and, and see our blind spots, see our faults, and see, see our failures before they can ever tell us to stop. We completely take away the, uh, the power uh, from Scripture when we hide the struggles we have or the ugly thoughts we have. When all we do is spend our time hiding those, we take away the power of God's Word. If we don't live openly enough in front of other people that they can really pick out some faults you have or areas you can improve, then what you need rebuked on is loving your own image more than you love the Bible. Paul writes uh, to another church about this process. He says in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, If I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. So now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to your repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and hear this, leaves no regret. So rebuke does not have to lead to regret. Your rebuke can lead to awesome things like repentance and salvation. But worldly sorrow brings death. Paul goes on to mention another way besides teaching and rebuke that God's word is good for us. When God breathed his words, we get better through correction. Now, correction is not the same thing as rebuke. You might be, it it carries much more the idea of course correction, of getting someone who's not on a terrible path onto a better path. And I have a great example of this. Uh, I had a buddy, and he uh, was learning to frame houses, and he would always tell us this story. So one day, he's putting up this wall, and uh, who's ever run a nail gun? Nail guns are fun, right? Nail guns are super fun. And he's new on the job, and he puts this wall in, and he nails it off with way too many nails, like probably 100 too many nails. Just so many nails. Okay, just, it's just fun. You hear pow, 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 pow. So fun. Uh, and then his boss walks by and says, did you straighten that wall before you nailed it down? 
And that's something you have to do or the wall of the house will literally not be straight. And he said, hmm, no, I didn't. And so his boss made him take his nail puller and pull every single one of those nails back out and straighten the wall and uh, then nail it back in. And do you think he ever made that mistake ever again? No, no, he never did. One time. He hadn't done anything by securing that wall. He hadn't done anything wrong. This wasn't the, maybe the same thing as a rebuke. He hadn't done anything wrong by securing that, na- that wall firmly to the floor. He just hadn't done it in the right order. He hadn't straightened it. He hadn't made it right. So he had to take a U-turn. He had to course correct and fix uh, what he had done. Paul writes to another church about this process. Uh, oh, in correcting, sorry. And he, he mentions it in Galatians 6, 1 through 2. And I'll let you guys uh, read that one for yourself. Um, but there's one last way, not just teaching, rebuking, and correcting. There's one last way that Paul wants to remind his young pastor friend, Timothy, that God-breathed words, that the God-breathed words of the Bible can be helpful to him in his ministry. And the last one is training in righteousness. And as I studied and thought about this one, this one actually kind of became my favorite of all the other ones. Um, and it's not the same thing as teaching. It carries a different connotation. It kind of carries a connotation of teaching and training a child. And I th- when I thought about this, I thought about my work days. And, you know, we would put trusses in roofs. We would frame out uh, whole houses or whole buildings. But that buddy I had, he had been framing for years before me. And so we always had him on the job. And this idea of training in righteousness is this is what happens when your buddy, when, when you're getting someone ready so that you won't be where, with them the next time they're going to do that whatever, fill in the blank, put up roof, roof trusses or frame a wall or whatever. The idea of training in righteousness that Paul is trying to remind Timothy that God's words are good for is that if you train people in this, they can be ready to go out and do it on, them, on their own. Uh, but it's not just that. I think there's another aspect to it that is maybe even a little bit more heartwarming or exciting. And that, it's kind of like the rules of a sport. We can all know the rules of a sport. Uh, that doesn't mean you're any good at them, but you can know the rules of the sport and you can even learn the skills of a sport. You can be trained uh, to know the rules and know the skills of a sport and maybe be reasonably good. But what difference does it make when someone really loves the game that they're playing? Not just knowing basketball, not just having skills in basketball, but playing for the love of the game. It always elevates people to a whole nother level. And maybe, like me, still not all that great, but I have a ton of fun. It gives me so much joy uh, because I love basketball. And that's what this idea of training in righteousness is. We can understand uh, earlier in the same chapter, uh, Timothy 3, 1 through 7, he talks about, Uh, this very same principle. So he's kind of hammering on it with Timothy. Paul does. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. And if you look at this whole list, these aren't just do's and don'ts. These are attitudes about how people act. And that's the difference between straight teaching and training in righteousness. They'll be without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this is the key. 
having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And such people will, and it goes out later to say, they will always be learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. We have to be honest, I think, with ourselves that in a church as big as ours and in a town in Newton that has so many churches, we have people like this that we've been in contact with, that we know, or that go to a, some, some of the churches. People can live like this, and oftentimes I think they mean well, but they don't know how scary their position separated from Jesus is. Training in righteousness then has to be a life-on-life discipleship. It has to be not just that you know the rules of the game, but that you love the game. That you actually know God's word, but don't deny its power. There's that other aspect, and that's what training in righteousness is. That's how it's different from straight-up teaching. To go back, uh, training in righteousness is twofold. It, it talks about not just knowing and having skills, but loving. When we look at training in righteousness with this heart-level approach, it guards against a person just picking up the right words to say or having good behavior. I'm convinced that each one of us, every one of us, me, you, everyone you know, we need some kind of a mentor in our lives. Or if nothing else, we need a group of peers who can make sure that we, that, who can teach us about the faith and our relationship with Jesus. Not just what we need to do or not do, but how to actually handle a relationship. If I just bring flowers to my wife every day because someone told me this is the right way to tell your wife your lover, at some point she's going to get mad and say, I don't want any more flowers. This is silly. Don't waste all our money on flowers. Knowing how to live in a relationship, knowing how to live uh, with God, knowing when you bring someone flowers, when you bring them chocolate, when you do the dishes, when you do those things, when is the right thing, time to do the right thing, and when is, what is the right way to show the love that you actually have. That's what this training in righteousness really looks like. It's not just the facts of the Bible or a stream of theology, but how to put it into practice and how to actually love it. Often when things go wrong, when we struggle to put good things into practice, we will see uh, a person's true colors. We'll see in those hard moments whether they run to Jesus or whether they run to their own passion or their own strategies. Do they when, they're, when, they're, when the chips are down, do they run to some process of doing things? Do they run to a, a, a list of rules or check boxes that they can work through? Do they run to a group of people that they know they all agree with? Or do they run to Jesus himself? And that's what training in righteousness is trying to lead us towards. This tells the tale, what they do, will tell the tale whether the God-breathed words are making them better excuse me, or if they are immune to true heart change. But what is the point of us getting better? The point of us getting better is not just being good. Uh, we're going to look at what uh, Paul wants to teach Timothy. What's the point of these God-breathed words making us better? We start out bad. We are born sinners. We have no way of helping ourselves. And until we fully trust in Jesus and only Jesus, uh, Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, righteousness, they'll have no benefit to us. God has plans for us, though, beyond those things. He has plans for us beyond just making us better. You see, the Bible is awesome. It's God's words, 
but we bear the very image of God. God loves his word. He's protected it for thousands of years so that we can have it today. But he loves us. We bear his image in a special way that we don't fully understand, but we reflect his image. So he doesn't just want to make us uh, kids, great kids. He wants to make us kids that do something. He wants us to be like Jesus. So Paul's reminding Timothy that God's word is useful so that we can be useful. Here, I actually like the wording of the ESV a little better, and it probably is a little bit more accurate. It says that uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness so that we can be complete. And that's the idea. I planted some little trees. Uh, God wants us to be complete, kind of like a tree. I planted some little trees, and I got those forestry service trees, and they're just like a little stick with some roots, and you have no idea if they're going to live or die when you put them in the ground. Uh, They're just like damp little sticks, and you stick them in there. And we watered, and we waited, and we watered, and we waited. And finally, I have one little tree. One of them is an oak tree, so I'll talk about my oak tree. It's my favorite because it's going to save me on cooling bills one day. Uh, But the little oak tree finally got some leaves. And technically, it's a complete tree. It has leaves. It has a trunk. It's got roots. It's got everything it needs to be a tree. But just because it's a complete tree, it is far from being any good to me. In fact, it's kind of a burden. I water it. I I even had to trim some fungus-covered leaves, kind of like rebuking off this tree. I had to trim some of those off of there. Uh, So this tree has been through a rebuking, correcting. You know, if it got a little crooked, I'd have to put a stick and make it, you know, go straight. This tree has gotten a lot of love and care for me. But It is a complete tree, but it's not really uh, what we would think of as a full, mature uh, tree ready to give us shade. And if you want to look at what a good tree looks like that bears fruit, that has the acorns, that brings the squirrels so my dog can chase them, and gives me the shade I want on my house, uh, look at Psalm 1, and it talks about a complete tree. I'll let you guys look at that on your own. Uh, This is really a picture of why God wants to let his God-breathed words make us better. He wants trees to be ready to do good things when they are complete or mature. Not not just a little oak tree that is technically complete, but he wants us to go through the process of being taught, of being rebuked, of being corrected, of being trained, so that someday we're that big, shady, cool tree that everybody loves. Like we are supposed to be when we submit, submit ourselves to God's word working in our lives, it makes us ready for good works we only get to the point of believing what's good or even being good, we miss the point of action. The Bible wasn't given to us so that we can have a holy huddle and high-five each other for believing true things on a Sunday or for thinking that we have the best behavior west of the Mississippi. That's not what it's for. It's for us to do good works. We don't have to look outside of this book. Again, in 2 Timothy, in, verses, uh, t- uh, in chapter 2, verses two, 20 and 21, it says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable, honorable use. He's just talking about some things are good, good for good things and some things are good for dirty things. If they're good for good, good things, they'll be set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So this is a theme that Paul is hitting 
over and over with Timothy. Whether you want to see yourself as useful as a complete tree giving shade to everyone around, or if you want to see yourself as the prettiest vase in the house, it's clear that Paul wants Timothy to use Scripture to clean, polish, grow, and mature his people through teaching, rebuke, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is how we are useful to each other and how we can bring good works to people in our communities who don't know Jesus. Paul doesn't want, doesn't specify where our good works are supposed to happen. I think it's pretty obvious that we are supposed to do good works to one another. But like we said, this is, Paul does, or God doesn't just give us his words so that we can be a holy huddle and happy with each other about how good our behavior is. It's meant to send us out to people who don't know him and be able to bring them to, to himself. So I'm going to hit really quickly just a few things that this idea of Scripture being God-breathed and being inspired, what it doesn't mean for us, what it isn't useful for. This idea is not meant for proving to yourself that you are complete. God does that work, and we shouldn't try. When we put our, our own lives, our own hearts, our own thoughts up next to Scripture, we should always see that we are lacking, that we are wanting, that we need more. It's also uh, the rock-solid nature of Scripture cannot lull us into a sense of security. Remember, because God's words are God-breathed, they are solid, and that does not mean that we are too. Only to the degree that we base our lives off of what God has says do we have any foundation, any firm foundation, any solid part of our lives. And lastly, Scripture is not for you to weaponize against others. Our first temptation, and I would confess that this is the temptation of many young boys walking onto that moody campus and seeing that verse. They think all Scripture is good for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Man, I'm going to learn this thing, and I'm going to go out and get to teaching people and rebuking people and correcting people. This is going to be so much fun. And what you learn very quickly, I think, or hopefully in your Christian life, is that first, we have to let those things be done to us before we can ever hope to do that for anyone else. And often, it has to be done to us over and over and over and over again until we get it. And then maybe we can help someone else. We have to be taught and rebuked before we can offer that to anyone else. Ultimately, Paul wanted to teach us very simply what the verse says. It's a very straightforward verse, which is set of verses, which is why I love it. He wants to teach us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is absolutely true when we first let the benefits of Scripture be used on us and then we take those lessons we learn to others and then all as a family, we do those good works to one another and outside of these walls. God's word is so much better than Christmas socks because when God breathed, we just don't get use, a useful gift. We actually get better. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that we never have to doubt its goodness to us. It's the greatness of the material that we have to work with. We thank you for all the songs based on your word, all the times we spend praying and asking for you to, to fulfill your promises, all the things that we have written down for us, God. They're such a blessing. And God, we just ask that you would help us as a people, be a people quick to 
give these gifts of teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness to one another. And God, we ask that we would be a people who is quick to accept those gifts from one another. God, we know that you love us, and we know that you sending your word to us is one of the greatest examples of that. So as we go out today, help us to take your word with us and treasure in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.